Hi everybody, just before I get into the info about today's guest, I just want to apologise about the audio quality for this episode. It's not all that bad, it's just not as crisp as what I would like. Our guest was having some issues with her audio quality. Okay, so let's get into it. This episode is a doozy and today's guest is an absolute spitfire. If you've ever struggled with your mindset around money, then this is an episode for you. After qualifying as a coach in 2001 and working in her corporate gig as a teacher, today's guest left a toxic work environment to focus on being a full-time coach. Along the way, she fought through two different cancer diagnoses in the same year and is passionate about changing women's mindsets when it comes to money. But those limiting mindsets can also apply to men and we chat about how our mindsets towards money is different for the sexes and perhaps the reason why. Episode 50, Virginia Baker-Wolf. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Are you ready to launch into it now? Yeah, ready to rock and roll. Ready to rock and roll. I love it. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my coffee ready. I think this is going to be a cracker of a podcast. Um, so you are currently a coach, but you've had a very interesting life and you have had some challenges and hurd- hurdles over the way in terms of uh, career and health. So tell me a little bit about where you were before you started the coaching journey? Before I started the coaching journey, I was in a corporate education position in Mm -hmm. Sydney where I was absolutely miserable. Um, I had been, my, my training, my university training is in foreign languages, French and Spanish. I have a double degree in Spanish. Uh, I, I've lived for three years in Spain, 12 months in Paris. I attended the Sorbonne. I attended the University of Sevilla. And I, I still love my languages. And I taught for more than 20 years. But there's a limit. Mm. I also taught English as a second language. Um, so when I went to get a, you know, to get a position after I'd had children, I decided to go into this large corporate education Uh, department and uh, I loved education I thought I would be happy there but the corporate structure of that place did not suit me I was like a round peg in a square hole Mm. and I was absolutely miserable Mm. so from that place of being absolutely miserable and not and no longer wanting to do what I was very trained and experienced in I decided to look around at what else might be out there And I found this thing called coaching and I found it in an ad in the Saturday Sydney Morning Herald. So I thought, this sounds very interesting. I'm going to ring them. So Back in the day when you actually opened a newspaper and it wasn't all online. That is it. (laughs) What year are we talking, Virginia? Oh, 2001. Okay. That is exactly it. Back in the day when you opened a Saturday paper and the Sydney Morning Herald was a broadsheet. Mm. So, you know, it takes up the whole table. Yeah. Anyway. I found this course run by a fellow called David Rock, who since then has got a PhD, is in the States, and he's written about the brain and coaching. Um, And then I decided that that training actually wasn't enough. It didn't give me enough. So I went off and did more training. And then when I was in I was still, oh, sorry. When I was in that organization. I can bleep it out. I can bleep it. When I was in that organization, 
I, I asked the Learning and Development Department to loan me out as a coach so I could get some real practice and hours. And I also learned to do a manager as coach program, which was absolutely fantastic and I really loved doing it. But even though I had now gone and found these things and got myself trained and got myself with some experience behind me, and even doing this work in the organisation, I still felt absolutely stifled and uh, miserable. I spent six months uh, in town, in the main department in town, in like I was down the hall from the Director General. And that was much better to be down there doing some really positive work. But after I went back to the place I came from, I thought, I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. So, what was it about it that was so, I mean, you mentioned round peg in square hole. What was, it, what was about it that made it so miserable for you? Well, it was run on the basis of command and control. Right. And you will do as you're told when you're told. Well, sorry, I don't do, I'm one of six children. I'm the second of six. <laughs> I do not do what I'm told when I'm told. <laughs> Goodness. There, was not, there was a lot of gossip. Mm. There was a lot of backstabbing. Mm. Um, people did some very bizarre things. Um, people of in pe- people who were in positions of power and influence were dimwits mm-hmm. and small-minded. Yep, small-minded. I'm laughing because I know many organisations like this. Yeah. <laughs> Small-minded micromanagers yeah. who can't see further than the end of their nose. And, I mean, I leave these people, I mean, in a race with these people, I leave them in a heap of dust. Yeah. Um, but you're reporting into them. And I have to report into these people. Yeah. And I tell you what, when it's men who's the next in line to be reported to and they're very pleased with themselves and Mm. they think they're in a high position and they're wonderful, well, I'm here to tell you. uh, Not so much? Not so much. I don't think so. (laughs) And I don't think it's so much that it's the gender. It's the fact that they sometimes you, I don't know, in a very political environment, I don't know how to phrase this without pissing people off. There, there, there is a glass ceiling, and I don't care what anyone says. And there is a different, there's attitude. some organi- attitude, and some organisations, some organisations are very much a men's club, and it sounds like that is what you are in. Uh, well, not no, not really, but but that attitude still operated. So, in fact, the people in charge in this place were women. Mm. There were far more women in positions of influence than men. Wow, that's interesting that they were like that. Well, it it is interesting, but when the men got in the position of influence, they thought they were bunny with, you know. Um, There is is still a glass ceiling and there was a glass ceiling in that uh, institution and... The, whenever the men reached a, a high position, they took that far more seriously than any of the women who were even in higher positions. And there was always a power battle, a political battle of one kind or another. Yeah. And I've got to tell you that um, that organisation has been gutted from what it was because I first joined that organisation 
as a teacher many, 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 many years before. Mm-hmm. And the place has been gutted. Mm. And mm. Uh, people still complain or people still talk about the problem we have with vocational education. Well, many, many governments have gutted what we had. Mm. Um, so... When you work in a place like that day in and day out and it's all silly processes and boredom, um, it's, it's very stressful and I would suggest mm. to anybody that their health is at stake and they should get out of there as fast as they can. And I look back and I think I would have been better off being a barmaid, quite frankly. Well... It was interesting because I know that we sort of start talking about the the coaching journey in 2001, but you also had some health battles and I wonder whether or not the stress that that environment, that toxic environment caused could have added to the the eventual diagnosis, which you've got, which was you ended up with cancer. That's right. Well, mm. I, I think that's quite possible. Mm. Yes, I do. Mm. I think that is quite possible. As, as I said, fortunately, one of those can- those cancers was removed before we even knew it was cancer. Mm. That but was that a lung. Doesn't... That was a lung cancer. We were talking about it before we started recording. Yeah, the, the that, that was the lung cancer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'll need to. The, the listeners now weren't privy to that conversation before, so you'll need to explain <laughs> that <laughs> that diagnosis. Okay, so the lung cancer. Mm. I went to, I went, I ha, I'd been having a CT regularly. There was something on my lung. Nobody knew what it was. Everybody said it wasn't cancer. And then I went for a six monthly checkup and I had a CT. And this little thing that people could see had started to grow. Why were you having a regular CT because scan? Because I had a cough. Oh, okay. I had bronchitis. Right. Um, so I went back to the GP who immediately rang a thoracic surgeon. Mm -hmm. And this is in Sydney, so anyone in Sydney will know. I was in Surrey Hills at the doctor, and he sends me down the street to St Vincent's. And I saw the the doctor there that same day, and he said, I'm sending you for a PET scan. And he said to his um, assistant, book a PET scan for Virginia for Friday. She came back in and said, doctor, they say they can't do it. They're booked out. And so doctor says, you tell them to find a place because on Friday I will be walking her down there myself. (laughs) So they should just What an awesome doctor. (laughs) Yeah. So they should just find a time. Otherwise, they're going to have me down there as well. So, yes, of course, doctor, we found a time. So I go back to him on Monday Uh, and I took my husband and my daughter. I go back there on Monday and he says, well, this thing lit up on the PET scan. That means it's trouble. And I think it's a cancer. And I think we have to remove it. So I basically laughed and said, okay, you really think so? Yes, I'm very serious, he says. I'm very serious. It's not a laughing matter. And I said, right, well, when are we going to do that? He said, on Wednesday. You'll be here tomorrow afternoon. I say, right. So he did operate me on on the Wednesday. And what they do, they couldn't reach this thing. They couldn't reach it to cut it out. So I had to have a lobectomy. And a lobectomy is when they take out one lobe of your lung. 
which is a huge operation and you end up with lots of drains and lines and it's it's a really huge, huge operation, takes a long time to recover. Um, but, of course, I was very grateful. And funnily enough, this doctor, um, a lot of people found him very difficult mm. and a lot of people said that he had, rem- you know, he's a surgeon, so they said, uh, they'd say, yes, well, he cut out his own sense of humour. I don't know. For some reason, this guy liked me. I think it was because I turned up very colourful. But also like, you're, you're a personality that doesn't suffer fools, so you're probably very much like him in that regard. Yes, quite possibly. Yes. Anyway, yeah. look, he, this man was so good to me. Mm. He was just so lovely to me. When other people said he was a monster, I'd say, well, that, you know, that is just not my experience. Okay, so this is April. In December, I think I better go and have a... A, a scan of my chest to make sure everything's good and I decided I should have a mammogram because I haven't had one for a long time so I better have a mammogram and on the day of the mammogram I knew that there was a problem because of the way they behaved mm. and the way they looked at me and mm. the way I had to wait I knew there was a problem and so when the doctor finally saw me under the ultrasound He said, you have to be biopsied. I said, when? He said, you can come tomorrow or you can come after Christmas. This was the 22nd of December. And I said to him, if I were your wife, when would I be coming? And he said, you'll be here tomorrow at 9am. So I was there the next day at 9am. And then I had at least three doctors ringing the pathology people to get a result. Because it was the 22nd of December with the mammogram, the 23rd of December with the biopsy, and the 24th of December, everybody was finished. Mm. So if I didn't get a result then, I wasn't getting it till the 5th of January. Yeah. So I had everybody calling the pathology, we need to know what's the go with this woman. So we did find out the result, like on Christmas Eve, and it's sort of, there are various kinds of breast cancer, which is not commonly known. I had a thing called triple negative. Triple negative is the worst and the most deadly and the most aggressive. So there was a period there where I didn't know whether I'd get to the end of the year. I really seriously didn't. And it's people imagine what it might be like to be in that position, but there's no imagining it once you're there. So for me, once I was there, what I then did was I actually did this in a journal. What has my life been about? What have been the most important things? And what I came to was that um, I had a lot of boyfriends. When I was, you know, when I was young and unattached, I had quite a few boyfriends, and I'm talking serious boyfriends. Mm. Um, like I had one in Spain who followed me home. <laughs> and I had various boyfriends like this. And so because there were various boyfriends, there was also various heartbreaks. Mm. And I looked back at that and I thought, I am so grateful that I had so much experience. So many people loved me and I loved so many other people. And that's the most important thing. And so a happy work life, a happy family life, all of these things are very important. But in the end, the only thing that's really important is who you loved and who loved you. And 
I mean, and the other the other effect it's had on me is that I don't sweat the small stuff much. Mm. I mean, sometimes I do, but but nothing like I would have done before because I think, oh yeah, ho hum, it's not very important. When you got the diagnosis, though, and you're going in the thought process, you're going through that. I may not last until the end of the year. I mean, that's what you've just said that you were very yes. obviously very concerned. Um, I think we've got some clicking in the background. I'm not sure. Oh, are that's you flicking me. something? <laughs> um, when you're sort of thinking, I may not, I may not last till the end of the year. You're you're obviously thinking about the people that you've loved and that have loved you. But what, at what stage? At, at what stage do you sort of? say or come to terms or what's that process like coming to terms with that diagnosis because it would be so I mean you've already had one cancer cut out and then a few months later you're sort of you've got the worst case scenario in regards to breast cancer like why did you think that you may not last the the rest of the week because I mean how far advanced was it what was that thought process when you're sort of saying I've got this other diagnosis as well well, it was actually, the cancer itself was actually quite large. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, tell me again, what's the question? So what? So there was two questions in there. Why did you think that you weren't going to last the, a week to the end of the year? And then how did you, we'll start off with that one and then we'll go okay. from there. <laughs> because triple negative breast cancer only amounts to 10, 10%, 15% of all breast cancers are triple negative. So it is highly, highly aggressive and mm. it's very, very fast. And in this country, we, we don't have, we still do not have the same types of cancer diagnosis that you can get in Germany, for example, mm. where they can do genome sequencing and stuff. And when they do that, they can target the chemotherapy to exactly the type of cancer that you've got. We do not yet have all of that. So there's always a question as to whether the chemo that they decide for you, whether that's actually going to hit your cancer. Is your cancer going to be the one that that chemo... So it's a bit hit and miss. Why do we not have that if that technology... I, I, can't, I can't answer that. I really do not know. I, I'm, I Look, I'm staggered. Yeah. You know, we do have one of the best health systems in the world. There's no doubt about that. But but there are holes. Yeah. Um, so the problem is that they don't know if the chemo that they give you is going to be the best chemo. And uh, in, in with my situation, I have a thing called IgG subset deficiency. So we have uh, five types of immunoglobulin. One of them is IgG. IgG is the most important immunoglobulin we have, mm-hmm. and it has a subset. It has a subset of four different types. So you've got IgG 1, 2, 3, and 4. Mm-hmm. So you can have an IgG blood test that shows as normal, but if they go ahead and do a test on the subsets, they might find out that one or two of your subsets are non-existent. And that is the case with me. Now, so what- when you're talking immuno immunoglobal that globin, that is your yeah. immune system, basically. That's, what- your, that's your immune okay. system. Okay. So what happens when you have chemo? Your immune system takes a terrible hit. Mm. And 
I had an IgG subset deficiency, which meant I was much, much, much more at risk than the next person. And unfortunately, there was a guy, um, there was a friend of a friend who lived in Bali. He'd been living in Bali for the last 45 years. And all of the best hotel gardens in Bali were done by him. Mm. His name was Michael White, Made, Made Wijaya, he called himself, and he had a cancer. So he came home to get treated and there was a picture of him on Facebook. He was in a hospital gown and he had a, you know, he had a drip beside him, but he was alive. By the next afternoon he was dead from a complication with the chemo. Not from the cancer. He didn't die of the cancer. He died of the complication of the chemo. That's scary. So on the day that I went to get the first chemo, I was I was beside myself because, and I said to the doctor, listen, it might not be the cancer that kills me. It might be the chemo that you give me today. Mm. Anyway, I, I, I was in a, in a strictly medical sense, I was much more at risk than the regular, than the regular person. person. Yeah. So it was a very aggressive cancer and I was more at risk. And then there's the whole conversation about mastectomy. Do you have a mastectomy or don't you have a mastectomy? The first two surgeons I went to, they wanted me in hospital. You know, one guy was going off to Bali the following day and he'd be back on such and such and on the 17th of January we'd do a mastectomy. And I sat there and I said, really? He said, yes. I said, well, we'll see about that. And then I went to see somebody else. I saw him on a Thursday or Friday and he said, I'll take that breast off next Tuesday. I said, really? I don't know about that. I don't think so. And I said to him, what about doing chemo first? And he said, no, 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 we don't do that. We operate straight away. I think, yeah, good. So, of course, that puts a woman into a spin that she's going to mm. lose a breast. Mm. So I came home and I thought about a very, uh, a woman who I have a great regard for, a very bright, intelligent woman who'd had a cancer and I rang her. And she came, she came and she was so good. So many people were so good. She came and sat with me on the Sunday afternoon and she said, you do not do anything until you have seen Warren Hargraves and L. Jean Lim and you don't let anybody convince you to do anything till you've seen Warren. So I went to see Warren like the next day. And um, You're lucky you got in. Yeah. Well, I rang up and I told, look, if you mm. ring and say, listen, I've been biopsied. Yeah, and I've, I've got triple negative. In the, because in the, this is all in St. Vincent's Clinic. I've been yeah. biopsied in the clinic and I need to see you straight away. This is my diagnosis. Mm. Um, he was so good. And one of these doctors that wanted to do the mastectomy is next door to him in the clinic. And I told him I'd been to these two. And he said, and what did they say? I said, well, they wanted to do a mastectomy on me last Tuesday, last week. Mm. You know what he said? He said, that would have been an egregious error. We do not do mastectomies these days until we have done the chemo. So we try. Wow, that's we, interesting. Yes. So we try to minimise the invasion of the breast until we see if it responds to the chemo. And he said, now, I'm not saying that we're not going to do a mastectomy. Maybe we will have to. But yeah. for, to start with, we're going to start you on your chemo and then we'll see 
That's interesting that somebody within the same room, like, you know, St. Vincent's, right next door to him, had such a different clinical, well, two of them did. Two people, two other surgeons that you went and saw, specialists went and saw, had the same the The oncologist had, didn't agree with them and the surgeon. So one oncologist and one surgeon right. didn't agree. Gee, it's interesting. So, Thank goodness for that friend of yours. That's right. Um, so when you're going through all of that and people are talking about all these, oh, oh dear, sorry, it's the bell. That's okay. Perfect. So hang on, we are saying that there was, you got a different medical opinion and um, there was an oncologist and another surgeon that disagreed with the diagnosis in regards to the mastectomy that, first. Yeah, that, I disagreed with, with the course of action. Yeah. And out of that, I would say to anybody, get a second opinion, get a third opinion. Before you do a woman, before you do anything like have a mastectomy, ask around, go and see somebody else. And I think also the other part that's really important is to listen to your gut. Mm. You know, if your gut tells you something, there's something fishy here, there's something funny, this doesn't sound right to me, I don't like this, well, go and get another opinion, which is what I did. I mean, both of these doctors, when they sat there and said, I'm going to operate on you next Tuesday, I sat there and I thought, yeah, Really? I don't think so. I'm going to find out other things because, I look, I do a lot of research. I'm, you know, I mean, I basically started as an academic and I do a lot of research. So when I did the research, I found out that there was a new chemo that people were managing to avoid invasive surgery if they had this chemo. So I asked one of the surgeons that wanted to operate on me straight away, I asked him about that. And he didn't know about it. And I think, listen, I'm a lay person. I'm not a medical, I'm not a doctor. I'm a lay person. Yeah. And I say this to you from the research I've done, and you yeah. don't know about it. Yeah. Well, what that tells me is that you are not up to date with your profession. Yeah. So I'm not going to believe what you say until another three people tell me the same as you. And But it's interesting, though, because you still had that mindset in a very overwhelming diagnosis situation and you're racing against the clock. I mean, it's triple negative, it's time sensitive and it's highly aggressive. That's right. And so, it doubled in size from, from the date of the mammogram on the 22nd of December to an ultrasound just before the chemo began. A month later, it had doubled in size. Yeah, in, see, a lot, of, a lot of people would just be like, okay, okay, take it out. Like, I'm, it's so overwhelming. I don't know whether or not I, I I would like to think that I would, but I don't know whether or not I would keep going for a third and fourth opinion if I, you know, like you'd just be like, okay, well, someone else is also telling me to take off the, to lop off the breast. That's what well, I got to do. that's why I say listen to your gut. Yeah. If your gut tells you, yes, I feel very comfortable with this, I think this doctor knows what he or she is talking about, I'm happy to take their advice and do what they say. Now, if you feel comfortable with that, then go with it. Mm. I didn't feel comfortable with what either of these surgeons was telling me. Mm. And, I mean, the other thing, and I don't mean to be rude about surgeons because we owe them our lives, mm. but the reality is this is also how they earn their income. They liked, and but, but also that's the, 
I mean, they're passionate about it. That's why they go into that. They like and, to cut. And this is their passion. You know, they yeah. like to they like to get their knife out and have a yeah. bit of a play around. Yeah. So they they I mean, surgeons. It doesn't matter whether it's a breast surgeon or it's a different type of surgeon. Yeah. Surgeons will all border on the idea of cutting. And yeah. interesting that you say that because. I mean, it's more than five years now since my uh, lung cancer and I, and 77% reached five years. So I reached five years. But um, I haven't had a scan. I had a, a, I get a PET scan at the beginning of every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a period of time, I went to see a, a thoracic specialist, not a surgeon, a lung specialist, but not a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh She's really, really wonderful, this woman. And when I said to her, when I asked her the question, should I be coming to see you or should I be going back to the surgeon professor, she said, Virginia, when we're, when we're mopping up and we're seeing how we move you forward, you don't go back to the surgeon. They might mm. decide they need to cuff again. You come and see me. If you need a surgeon, I will send you to him. And I think it's important. I mean, your point that they say that they save lives and and they're incredibly important. So I I think it's important for us to reiterate that we're not dissing surgeons, but that is their specialty. I mean, I've never had this type of thing with any other surgeon in my life. And I've had quite a Mm. few surgeries. Mm. Uh, I've never had this with any other surgeon. But Mm. and look, this will also change with the woman involved. I could not cope with the idea of losing the breast. Mm. It was just so... It just felt so awful and look, mm. it must feel like that for every woman but there may be out there as some women who think, well, no, they'd rather do that and, look, I don't have any criticism of that. That's Everybody should do what suits them. It's a personal, them. yeah, it's a personal and, situation. I mean, the two surgeons that I did have because my surgeon Warren did operate on me. He, did, he oper- you know, they operate and they do a thing called a lumpectomy. Mm. And he did beautiful surgery. He, he, he does like embroidery. I mean, it's, it's all, you wouldn't know that there'd been surgery. Yeah. Um, so, no, I'm not dissing surgeons at all. Uh, mm. All of the surgeons I've had have been fabulous. Yeah. But yeah. you see, there's the point. I haven't gone, I haven't been under the knife of a surgeon that I did not think was wonderful. Look, I think it's the same with anything. I mean, you've got to gel with your healthcare professional, whether or not it's, you know, no matter what area of, of care that they're under just watch your microphone just watch your microphone you have to have a good relationship with your surgeon yeah even if it's a small issue still find out get the best get the best surgeon do your research ask around talk to your friends Mm. so at what stage did you get the all clear because you managed to to not need a mastectomy yep they say they date your cancer they date your recovery from the date of diagnosis and they say that when you get to the end of three years, you're doing really well and when you get to the end of five years, you basically clear. So I think I'm at the end of five years this year. So um, 17, 18, 19, 20, five years for me next year, next year. Do you celebrate that uh, date? Hey? Do you celebrate that date? Well, in a small way, yes. I'm very aware of the 22nd of December. Mm. And you see, there again, it was only my intuition. Mm. 
you know, I thought I'm going to have a CT scan. Oh, maybe I should do the breast because I haven't done that for a while. And I want to end the year knowing that everything's good. I think if you I made me want to go to the doctor now. I've had a cough for like 10 years. <laughs> because I'd had that little, um, that little intuitive voice and I listened. So the thing mm. is to listen. Mm. And for someone who's had a cough for 10 years, I mean, there are so many possibilities. It can just be about histamine. Mm. Well, that's originally what I got diagnosed is that it was the hay fever, but it's all year round. So we'll have to see. (laughs) 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 Yeah, anyway. Maybe I should have got that third third and fourth uh, opinion. Well, if they're not giving if they're not giving you an opinion, it's time to have another look at it. Yeah, I think I think I've had a bit of an ostrich situation, which is unusual. Normally, I'm pretty good at pretty good at being on top of things, but anyway. Um, so you've so you've gone through that. You nearly hit the five years. So well done, congratulations on that. The reason why I asked if you celebrated the milestones, those anniversaries, is because I follow. I've actually interviewed her on the podcast. Um, uh, Nicole Coopy, she's a uh, bowel cancer and she's got secondary cancers as well that she's now dealing with. Um, and she's incredible and she does uh, she does celebrate them. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. She was given – she's stage four, so she was given I think 18 months or something and then she's still three years later or, or something. She's, um, she's still kicking along. So that's why well, I asked if you – That's actually another level of difficulty to be given. Mm. I mean, no one ever said that to me. Mm. Mm. Um, but that is a a greater level of difficulty than I had but my biggest difficulty was the fact that I'm IgG subset deficient which meant that when my immune system crashed it really crashed Mm. Mm. Um, and I get monthly treatment for that and it it, I mean that's another story it took me 30 doctors really I knew I was I knew I was not okay and it took me 30 doctors to find the right doctor. Do you get to a point, though, where you just think this must be all in my head? No. No, because if you really look, there's a whole issue about people who they're not really ill but or, or they're stressed and it's coming out in illness, but there's not really a problem. I never at any stage thought there's not a problem. I knew there was a problem. And I go to a, a, a look, a, the ma- a man who has been so good to me, Dr. Richard Schlofel, and R- Richard didn't diagnose it straight away either. But over mm. time, once he was watching and watching and then he ordered different tests uh, and then the test that you do to, dis- to discover if you really are, if you really do need treatment is that they... Um, vaccinate you with tetanus and pneumococcal syndrome, and they see. Then they measure. They measure a, a base level blood. Then they then they inject you with the vaccination, and three weeks later they get they test again, and the test needs to have shifted a certain amount if your immune system is working. So mine didn't shift, and so when it doesn't shift, and they've done this particular test. That means that you're eligible for this particular treatment at hospital, which is called immunoglobulin, intravenous immunoglobulin treatment, which is very expensive. Um, It costs Medicare $3,000 a month for me to do this. Imagine if I was not living in this country. Oh, no. And I am much better since I've been on that. So 
when all these other people said, well, they didn't know what was wrong with me and they didn't really think anything much was wrong with me. And then Richard turns around and says, this woman is IgG deficient. No wonder she's sick. <laughs> do you did you do you find because of that though, if those immunizations didn't didn't take, which is I'm assuming with the spectrum that they're trying to see whether or not you've had that immune response, does that mean that all immunizations don't work on you? No, it doesn't. Now, isn't that isn't that bizarre? No, it doesn't mean that. So, for example, I've had my COVID vaccine. I've had yeah. um, double dosed, and yeah. and Richard was the one who said to me, "You have to." You have to get vaccinated because if you get it, we're going to be in serious trouble. So you've yeah. got to get vaccinated. So he wouldn't tell me that if he thought that the vaccine wasn't going to take effect. Well, yeah. So I would say in doing this test to determine whether you qualify for the Medicare-funded treatment, I'm sure they've got a vaccine that they know, like, this is what this vaccine will do. Mm. And it doesn't mean, for example, that the COVID vaccine won't take or any other vaccine. I wonder whether or not. I mean, that's probably the treatment that you're getting is helping, is helping that response. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a medical yeah, yeah, professional. Yeah, yeah, that, that is. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. When did you start doing the coaching? I mean, you've got all of the when. So what year was? I know it was the 22nd of December that you got the the. Um, 2016. So it was 2016. 2001, you started doing your, the TAFE course or the, sorry you're doing the courses were they, are they TAFE courses the coaching no 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 no. they weren't TAFE no. courses they were with the actual first coaching training organization in the world which is coach okay. you in the states so and I would highly recommend that to anybody who's looking at coach training coach you is excellent so at what stage did you step out of the toxic work environment that you were in. I know we're sort of going back now on the calendar. So at what stage did you sort of step out of that toxic work environment and start coaching full-time? At the end of 2005. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then when I was sick or, you know, not very well, and I'm going to these 30 doctors to try to figure out why I'm not very well. Mm. Somebody, I, I wasn't doing much work. I did a little bit of work, but not mm. a lot. And somebody, one of my friends said to me, why don't you try a painting class? Why don't you just try a painting class to see if you can just be mindful and settle down and relax a bit? Mm. So I thought, okay, I'll do a painting class. So I knew a lady who lived just down the road from me, and I, I knew her you know, from the kids' kindy and all of that. So I went and did a um, painting class with her and she she's a really lovely woman and a great teacher and then uh, I brought my painting home and my children said, gee, Mum, is that what you've been doing? Um, which, you know, I can laugh about it now. At the time it didn't seem very supportive. <laughs> <laughs> But now, instead of saying, is that all you've done, Mum? Now they say, can I have another painting? Can I have this one? <laughs> and one of my paintings is in New York because I have a book. My son lives in Los Angeles. He used to live in New York. And one time he was home, he said, I'm taking a painting back with me. Is that okay? I said, yes, that's fine. But how are you going to pack it for the plane? Oh, he said, I'm going to get it packed properly and it'll go in cargo and blah, blah, blah. So uh, the painting... You know, I would I would highly recommend to anybody who's going through something of terrible adversity mm -hmm. 
that they find something like that to entertain themselves. And, you know, with a thing like painting, you go into it thinking, gee, what am I going to do? Am I going to be able to do anything? Well, my kids didn't think I could do much, but that didn't stop me. And so the thing is to just throw yourself in and it doesn't matter what you do because you can paint over it and start again. Um, well, and I was looking at some of your artwork and some yeah. of them is, it, I mean, it looks like you've got an Aboriginal influence in there in regards to yes. the traditional artwork. Yes. You've got um, very contemporary artwork as well. Um, do you have any Aboriginal heritage? No, I don't that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> yeah, I just wondered where the, where well, the inspiration but, you know, came from. I do think, I mean, I'm very careful with my work. I, like I see some Indigenous stuff, I think, oh, God, I could do that. And then I think, be careful, you can't steal their work. Mm. Um, the reality is all Australians are surrounded by that work from the time we're knee-high to grasshoppers. Mm, and it's beautiful so it's, work. It's, it's really mm. not surprising that an Anglo-Saxon Australian, Anglo-Irish Australian, would be influenced. Mm. I mean, when I was growing up, I used to do these, uh, you know, doodles. Yep. And then I would do patterns in the do doodles. And yep. now if I look back on those doodles or the type of thing I was doing, it was all Indigenous. Isn't that interesting? And I was only like seven. So I think all Australians, regardless of their ethnic background, are influenced by Indigenous work because we're surrounded by it. And I love Indigenous work. And it's so work. fabulous. Have you ever thought about spending some time in an Indigenous art community? No, I haven't, but that's a, an interesting idea. Yeah. When we when we are allowed out, I know you guys in Sydney are a lot further along than Melbourne. Um, we won't get down into the fact that the Melbourne's the most locked down city in the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, you should totally go do that. Go spend some time in an Indigenous community and... Well, artists. it's interesting that I have two nieces, yeah, each who are cousins. They're not sisters, so, I, um, but two different nieces who are both very interested in indigenous work. I've got one who's living in Alice Springs, mm. who does um, sound healing. Oh, beautiful! Yeah, and voice work. Yeah, and she does it within the Aboriginal. Uh, community. Indigenous communities, yeah. and my other one, my other niece, Caroline, is a uh, a qualified social worker and mental health practitioner, and she also spent quite a number of years in Alice Springs, and she's also very um, influenced by Indigenous work, not necessarily artwork, but stories and ways of living. Mm. And mm. they've both been very seriously impacted and they both feel very connected. Mm. So you would have to ask, was there any... It'd be interesting if you ever did a DNA test, which is a whole other episode in regards to DNA tests. Um, I'll talk to you about it off offline. Um, and whether or not there is any Aboriginal hist like genetics there going back considering your family's so drawn like you'd have to think that there's some reason why your family's drawn to that well yes yeah yes yeah. and one of my grandmothers was born in Goulburn and 
that, you know, there's a physical type that older Aboriginal women have, and that is that they're quite top-heavy mm. and they're quite solid around the middle, mm. but then it just all drops away into being very slim. So their legs, bit... are, so their legs are very slim, and then they're yeah, top yeah. heavy. Their okay. legs and their thighs are slim, mm. and their bottoms quite slim. Mm. And so they sort of go like this. Mm. And my grandmother was like that. And one of my nieces, Caroline, Caroline said, "I just wonder if Nana Glasheen, very mm-hmm. Irish, if Nana mm-hmm. Glasheen, if there was actually some Aboriginal blood on their." property because they they had a, a large um, station yeah outside of Goulburn and there were like eight children and so Caroline says I just wonder mm. so 23 and me is probably a good idea to have a look at that Yes, have a look at some other ones I do I listened to a, um, a podcast with I think it was a Joe Rogan podcast. And he had a genetic guy on there and he was talking about the intellectual property of DNA. So when you give your DNA over to these companies, what are they doing with it? Are they then keeping your, like once you've given up your DNA, you've given up your DNA. So what does that mean long-term? What are they doing with this DNA profile of all these millions of people? It's it's massive metadata that they're collecting. So I'm not saying it's just 23andMe. I'm saying all of them, like all of this stuff. And it was a, it was a, he was posing it in terms of when the GMO, and this is a while ago, so I might get this wrong. Everyone needs to go listen to the episode and I'm paraphrasing here, so I'm probably getting it completely wrong. But from my memory, he was saying that what happened with GMO crops is that they did the GMO crops and then everyone went, hang on a minute, this is not quite right, but the cat was out of the bag then. It, it was it was a good probably four years ago maybe, three or four years ago I listened to the podcast and back then he was saying now's the time we need to be talking about this genetics and whether or not this data that we're cl- that they're collecting is good that they're doing it and what are they doing with it and it's a genetic conversation that needs to be happening in right. regards to it and needs to be happening now. So it's very interesting because I'd never considered that. Please, everyone, go and try and find that episode. I probably butchered it, but that, <laughs> that, was, that was what I got out of the bloody – he was a specialist and I'm obviously not. But, yeah, it was very interesting. It's made me never want to, never want to do a DNA test. <laughs> but then if, every time you do a pathology, you kind of think, well, what do they do? With, well, that's you know, right. That's yeah. true too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's very interesting though of, yeah. of doing it. So Virginia, tell me, you, you started doing this this the coaching back in two thousand and five, and you've grown it. I know that a lot of coaches sort of focus on different avenues and aspects of coaching. What what area do you find that you're sort of more drawn to? Okay, well, I started out doing leadership and corporate. Yeah, and and I thought that was great. Yeah, and I think I had a very positive impact, and. Then uh, in around, like around the same time as the cancers, I started to be aware because I was doing a lot of thinking and I started to be aware of the fact that I didn't know much about money. I was a bit of a dill about money and I felt the same about money as I felt about taking my car to the mechanic because the mechanic could tell me anything. Mm. I wouldn't have a clue. Mm. And I don't want to get my fingers dirty. Thank you. Mm. Mm. And I felt the same about money. And uh, I had a few narratives running around in my head. 
One of them was very unpleasant. One of them was about the bag lady, you know, you're not prepared for retirement and you're going to be walking around the streets with a shopping trolley. Mm. Now, it was very, I started to do a lot of reading because mm. I'm an academic, so that's what I do. I go do the research. So I did the research and I also started talking to people. And the extraordinary thing that I found, which bowled me over, was the fact that more than 50% of women are walking around with this image in their head of the bag lady with the shopping trolley. And as we don't talk to each other, about money because it has such a huge taboo it's more taboo than sex and drugs and because we don't talk to each other we don't know that that lady across over there she's also worried about the bag lady um we are all affected by very similar paradigms and patterns and and we think we're the odd one out so I'm quite a successful woman and I think, well, I should be successful with money too. Like why can I be successful with this? But over there here with money, I'm a dill. Mm. So I think that doesn't work. That doesn't rub together properly. Mm. Uh, and then I, with the research, I realised that the majority of women were in the same place as me. Now what that did for me was it normalised it and it made it that I wasn't odd. Because I thought I was odd. I thought, you know, how could you think like this? I thought I was odd, but I found out that I'm not odd. I'm just part of the crowd. But the crowd doesn't know what the problem is. So I, I did more research and more reading, and then I decided to get, um, to get certified as a money coach. And that was not, that's not, none of the coach training I've done is like your weekend thing. Mm. The coach training, I've done, God, I've done must be up to 400 hours in coach training. With with the money coach training, how does that fit in? Because I know that the government's cracking down on fin- like um, media and podcasts and whatever doing like financial advice. So how do you navigate that, you all need the to, legalities? You need to state very clearly that you are not a financial planner. Right. And I, I do that. I state yep. that with regularity. I yep. am not a financial advisor and I am not qualified to give you any type of financial advice whatsoever. I am a behavioural and mindset money coach and mm-hmm. I'm the one who will say to you, you need to go and talk to the bank or you need to go and, go and have a chat with three uh, financial planners or three, three accountants and three, mm. go and talk to people go and have a consultation. I mean, a consultation like that doesn't cost any money because you're just sussing each other out. Mm. I'm the one that says you need to have a tax agent and a financial planner and Mm. you need to seek advice from them. And you have to make sure that that financial planner is rigid inch and you're much better off if you pay a fee, like an outright fee Mm. for service Rather than ongoing commissions? Rather than ongoing commissions because if you pay ongoing commissions, that influences who they put you with. And Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say that it may well be in their own interest but not in yours. Now, I'm Mm. sure that they're not all like that but it's much safer to do a fee-for-service. So I think if somebody in my position just makes it extremely clear and if somebody were to come with me and say, Virginia, this is how much I earn, and uh, the bank is saying this, what do you think? I'd say not qualified to give that advice. 
go back mm. to the bank. If you're mm. curious about what the bank is telling you, go and ask another bank. It's the same as the doctors. Go mm. and get a second and third opinion. Mm. So, no, I would never tout myself as a person who gave any type of advice. So and I think that's a clear I think that's a very important and, and and wonderful that you put it like that. So you're more you're more in terms of not you're not put your money here. You're more you, this is what you need to do to find out where you should be putting your money. You yes. need to be speaking with this this type of person, this type of institution, this type of you're not giving them financial no, put your money exactly here. Exactly yeah. right. Mine is yeah. about mindset and behavior. Right. And we all need to develop a mindset that women don't have to be dumb about money. Women can be smart about money like we're smart about everything else. And Mm. part of being smart about money is going and getting the right advice and reading the right books. You know, I would recommend to everybody that they start out with Scott Pape's book. Now, I know he's a man, but he's a very nice man. And and his book (laughs) is... We're not shitting on men in this. No, we're not shitting on men. His book is excellent. The Barefoot Investor. The Barefoot Investor. And I had a friend, a young friend, who was spending way too much money, a person on a very good salary who was spending all her money on clothes Mm. when, in fact, she should be doing other stuff. So I gave her a copy of this book. And mm. then I said to her, how are you going with that? Oh, no, that's too boring. So I said, well, you know that that comment is what the majority is saying, don't you? You're only saying the same as every other woman. You have to find a way to make it not boring. And the way you find it not boring is to term it in, is to look at it in terms of freedom, mm. not boring. Freedom gives you choice about what you do with your money. It doesn't have to be boring. You know, you can save for a vacation. This is not boring. Um, and then I, I, I didn't ask her again, but she said to me just in passing, well, you know, we've been having money dates and we've saved this much. <laughs> so money dates is, uh, money is something dates. that he actually puts into his book. So she, that yes. comment was he's follow, she's following the book. Yes. And they'd saved a heap of money. Good on them. In not very long. And they have this money date. I don't know if it's every week or every second week. They have a money date and they decide what their aims are and what they can spend and what they can't spend. They've, all, they've started an automatic saving, savings uh, automatic payment and yep. I would recommend that to everybody. And if someone says, Virginia, I don't earn enough money, how could I do that? I say start with $20 a month. Mm. $20 a month you would spend. Spend that on your lunch or or five copies. Start saving $20 a month because it's what it will do for your mindset. It will tell you that you're being responsible. It will be telling you that you're developing some structure. It will be telling you that you're taking action. So even $20 is a, is a great influence on your thinking. What do you, what's the common theme? I mean, you're dealing with a lot of women in terms of their money mindset. So what do you think the common theme is you're finding with women com- compared to men in regards to why we're not as financially ahead or we've got this bag lady mentality that you're talking about in regards to retirement? I think we have a number of problems. The first problem is we think that we're dumb about this and because we're dumb, we stumble around in the dark about it and we actually tell ourselves we're not very good with money and 
this is not only a person who's on $50,000 a year, this is a person who's on $250,000 a year and they're still saying to themselves, I'm not very good with money and, gee, I don't really know how to do money and it's pretty scary and it's so big and all of those jargon terms they use, I don't even understand the language. How could I understand about the money? And because of that and because of the anxiety it produces, women put their heads in the sand like an ostrich and they think if they don't look, it'll go away. I think also women are more probably programmed as, and I'm talking genetically now in terms of probably being more of a nurturer and looking after everybody else, whereas, the you know, genetically back in caveman times, you know, the guy was off hunting and providing and all that sort of stuff. So I think probably genetically we're, we're looking at looking after everybody else before we look after ourselves and that meant that mentality potentially has to change first as well. I think that, I think that you're 100% on the nail. Yeah. And I do think that women are naturally inclined to be nurturers and I don't think we should do anything to change that. I think that women are wonderful nurturers but I do think that they could start to nurture themselves as well as their families. Mm, mm. And, yes, the men are out there, the hunters and gatherers, and the women are at home looking after the children. But these days the women are at home looking after the children and they're working, working. because it's hard to survive on one income. Yeah. But a lot of those women, even super successful, great salaries, they're still in the land of I'm stupid about money. And mm. my answer to that is no, you're not. I think it's important to insert here, and I'm always careful about saying this sort of stuff. We're not saying men aren't nurturing and we're not saying that men don't help out around the house. No, so I'm, no I'm not. We're saying, that, no. we're saying that traditionally 1950s, that's where we were at. Men went out to, you know, the husband went out to work as a generalised rule and women stayed at home and looked after and that's changed and not necessarily our mindsets changed with the change in society. A hundred percent. That's where we're coming from. A hundred percent. Do you know that my father felt it was an insult? If his wife went out to work, it was an insult because it meant that he couldn't provide for her properly. She mm. shouldn't have to go out for work because I should be providing for her. So we flipped over. Um, work is not just about money. Money is one of, one of the issues with work. There are a whole load of other issues, like socialising, um, feeling competent, achieving something. There are so many other parts to working besides money. And I think women have started to get a handle on all of those things, but the money is still back in the 1960s. And mm. I saw on Facebook just last night, somebody posted a thing about what was happening in 1971 with women. Women couldn't have a credit card in 1971 no. without the permission of their husband. Or a bank account. Or a bank account, or borrow money, or buy a car, or yeah. buy a house. Yeah. Women, I mean, this is only 50 years ago. Now, 50 years to the young ones will seem like an eternity. And it is half a century ago, but the fact is we haven't moved very far. Just we, bring your mark in front of your face. We've moved, we've moved to um, women do have permission to work. So yeah. we've shifted that. 
Yeah. But we have not shifted a whole range of other issues. Yeah. And they need to be shifted into a space of permission where women have permission and where they give themselves permission to learn about money. So that's the first step is to learn about money. And it is a very overwhelming topic because it is huge. And so I would say start with one step. Start with Scott Pape's book Mm. and then see what other uh, research you might like. And have some women's stuff coming into your inbox, you know, like the business chicks. They send out some fabulous stuff. There's Mm. another one called Women's Agenda. They send out great stuff for something else called Wires. And they're not just talking, I mean, they're not talking about money. They're talking about whole ranges of issues. And, And, you know, the young ones, I mean, Our young ones are not playing catch-up. Our young ones are reinventing. And when we're plugged in to places where the young ones are plugged in, like business chicks, you learn a whole heap of stuff. I learn a whole heap of stuff. I think they're fabulous. So the money piece is just as important as the right to vote because we need, women need to be empowered. They need to be empowered for themselves, for their own lives, for their families, and they need to be in a position where they're clear of stress because a woman who is clear of stress will be a much happier woman, but she will also be a much happier mother. And when you have happier mothers, you have better mothering. And when you have better mothering, you have happier societies. So it's a little bit like... It might feel only like it's a drop or a dribble, but it's a dribble that spans out like a ripple. But I would say that also in regards to to men and parenthood as well. Like if the if a husband or a father is because obviously you don't have to be married to have kids, but if a father is stressed, then they're going to parent differently as as well. So Absolutely. I think that that's a I think that that statement can be towards Absolutely. both. Absolutely, uh, look, yeah. a lot of these a lot of these issues can be exactly the same for men, and I'm yeah. not dissing on men either. I love men, yeah, but we do still have gender differences, and some of these differences are just the fact that women have children, you know, yeah. and that. That's a huge thing. It's a reality. Thing. It's, it's a, a huge reality. Thing. And yeah. it's a reality. And we're going to go on having children. And while we're having children, uh, we need, uh, our family needs to be supported because a baby is, you know, 36 hours in one day is a baby. Mm. A baby is a lot of work. And, um, you know, women who are trying to do everything, fabulous if they can manage to do that. But I think this is another thing that we've got on women. Um, which actually is not very fair. I don't see why women have to do everything. Uh, And I think that women who take time out for motherhood and babies, I mean, I think that's great. And, of course, the reality is that when people are having babies, they don't actually know till they get that baby in their arms how they're going to feel about it. So they might think that they're just going to waltz on and keep working Well, when the baby arrives, it's a completely different thing. And it's not just about 36 hours in one day. It's about the the mother-baby bond. I mean, there's a very tight bond. And, um, you know, when a small baby cries, we are set up, women are set up so that when that baby cries, we have a whole chemical thing that happens that makes us go check on that baby. Mm. 
Um, do men have that as well? Do men have a Well, that's uh, interesting. I've, I've never thought about the hormones with men, but I think these days fathers are doing a whole lot more mm. and they're much more involved. Mm. And I think we do, we are starting to have uh, couples where the men would prefer to stay at home mm. and it may well be that the woman has a greater capacity for income than the man and they make the decision that they want the income and the, and the father is very happy to be at home. And any father I've listened to who's made that choice has said it's been one of the best choices of his life, that he, he just loves it. Mm. And he has a relationship with his children that he wouldn't have been able to have if he was the full-time worker. Mm. And, I mean, there's the full-time and part-time issue as well where both people can choose to be part-time. Mm. or, you know, staggered hours or four days a week instead of five, but something where they can work out a balance with each other so they both get the benefits of working and they both get the benefits of parenting. In terms of, in terms of um, your course, because you've, you've done two courses, you've got a short course, you've got a short course in terms of um, the, the money and you're going to educate me in regards to the actual title of it. Um, the is it the money revolution? The it's called money mindset momentum. Money mindset. Okay, so that's the sixth module course that you've yes. got, um, which is only ninety seven dollars. So yes. that's uh, is that more of an introduction in regards to how to change your mindset? No, no, no. In regards it's a to complete financial... course. It look, okay. it's it's, a, it's a, if I say so myself, it's an excellent course, and it takes you through the most important issues. Now, the big course takes you through more. So just for example, in the big course, I talk about under earning Mm -hmm. and I go through a bit of information about that and stuff we can do under earning, overspending, enoughness, not enoughness, um, self-esteem, self-confidence. It's it's packed with a whole lot more self-development. The money mindset momentum is is very focused on the money story, rewriting the money story money blocks and how to get around them, letting go of money stress, where we do talk about some practicalities, but I say to them, I'm not a financial, I don't act, I don't say go and do this at this rate of interest. I don't say anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, I tell them that they have to know their numbers and these are the numbers they have to know and here's a spreadsheet for you, an Excel spreadsheet for you to do it with. And, and that might be incoming income versus out your expenses and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, the Excel spreadsheet that I give them includes all forms of income and then it goes through all the expenses Mm. and if they're running a business or a side hustle they can they can duplicate that and uh you know delete whatever categories don't apply to their business and they can have that running as well and although I know that that spreadsheet for some is an anathema and they think that's terribly tedious and boring my suggestion to them is that if they start tracking their money on a daily and weekly basis, like the $20 automatic savings, they will start to feel much better about themselves. And when they feel much better about themselves, they'll be able to do a whole lot more with money and they will be building a structure for themselves. Um, I go through some modalities for busting through the blocks. I go through and then I do a whole module on Uh, stress busters because the major reason that women maintain their position of head in the sand is because it feels so anxiety producing Mm. 
They feel so anxious and worried that Mm. there won't be enough, that there'll be a problem, that they won't know how to handle it and it goes down this whole rabbit hole. Mm. And so I give them some very, very, look, very good, but just some very good information about soothing yourself. Mm. I mean, one of the tips I give is that it's been proven, and I was given this research by a psychiatrist, uh, a psychiatrist who's not your regular kind of psychiatrist. He's a, um, he's your like outside the box psychiatrist and he does sleep issues and stress issues and he doesn't use any medication uh and he does brain training he's he's wonderful was he doing emdr stuff is he he's doing similar stuff to emdr and he's doing a lot of training and that and the brain training software that they're doing comes out of uh amsterdam and germany the mm-hmm. Netherlands and Germany, and this guy is right at the front. He, anybody who's interested, his name is Dr. Mark Ryan. He is fantastic. And he said to me, or he, he sent me some research, and he said, changing your vision from focused to panorama will give your brain a break. So we all sit with our eyes glued on the computer which means that our vision is very focused. And he says, if you want to relax yourself and soothe your, relax your body, but in a real way, so that cortisol drops and there's a chemical response to relaxation, take a look at a panoramic view and don't focus anywhere. So have a look at a long distance view and don't focus. Mm. So so one of the modules goes through that. And then the last module is about how do we tie this up and how do we keep, how do you maintain uh, where you've got to? And, of course, there are parts of this where people will go back and repeat it and not just go through it once but go through it multiple times because it's it's jam-packed. And, and it's I know at that, a giveaway price. And I know that we're sort of talking about women in regards to mindset. That's because I think, mostly women have more limiting beliefs in regards to to money but i mean men can do it as well if they're struggling with the financial mindset they can totally do do it if a man wanted to do this the men have all of the same issues yeah without any doubt yeah i would welcome the men um i think that the men are further ahead than women in regards to money but that's not to say that there isn't a man out there who's got a very negative money story mm. from his family and upbringing and yeah. it wouldn't do him the world of good to, to have a look at this. Yeah. And there will be men out there who are carrying the same number of blocks about money as women are, just as there'll be women who are doing marvellously well and this doesn't apply to them. Mm. So, yes, there's a gender crossover and I'm very happy. If any man wants to, uh, to to come along, I'll welcome him with open arms. How are you doing the course? Is it you sign up and then you get you get sort of provided the webinar or like is it a set time, set date no. in which you're doing the well, course? Well, I do have a masterclass that's like that. People can do a masterclass. But, no, this is an audio course with slides. Mm-hmm. So I've got a bunch of... Um, if I do say so myself, beautiful slides that I <laughs> that are all very um, gorgeous looking and with lots of lovely pictures. And I take them through the slides and I talk them through it. And then there's a whole there there are exercises and handouts uh, 
So they get access to my to my um, portal, my learning portal, and it's all sitting there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It sounds fabulous. Yeah, it is fabulous. I think yeah. it's fabulous. Yeah. Well, that's out now. People can go on and jump on no, it no, now. They or is can it jump about to on launch? it next week. Okay. They can jump next. on it next week. Um, and then if they want to go have a look at the website, um, you know, they can da- download a free wealth mindset ebook and workbook. Mm-hmm. So that's a freebie. They can just uh, anybody can go and get that. So if they go to my website, they'll find it. It'll tell them you click here and do this. Mm-hmm. Um, the bag lady. I'm pretty sure there's the bag lady is on the because uh, um, what I've got is the top ten tips that actually help with the bag lady. I can send you the link if you like, or I can send yeah, you perfect. any links you want. Didn't I send you links? You did send me. Yeah, you sent me social media links. Yeah, yeah. I'll have a look uh, at what I sent you. Uh, you sent me the masterclass, the website, the money projects, the four steps to break through money project. Yeah. And there's a free gift as well, your yeah. ebook. Yeah, good. I'll put good. them all in the in the notes of the podcast. And then I, I've promised a lady in the States. <laughs> I promised a lady. This is good, see. This is good. This is a, give yourself a deadline. So I promised a lady in the States. She wants to publish what we did this week. She wants to publish it on Monday. And she wants the course to be all there so it's ready for her to publish, which means I have to get it done. <laughs> I love giving myself deadlines. I find that when I'm in a corporate environment, which is which is interesting, when I'm in a corporate environment and I've got somebody else that I'm answering to, I smash deadlines and I smash targets and I smash budgets and all that sort of stuff. But when I'm left to my own devices and I'm only answerable to myself, the procrastination creeps in. Yeah, well, you know, you're not alone in that either. We're all the same. <laughs> and that's why, I mean, having a coach, you know, if you look, even once a month, if you had a coaching session once a month with with a good coach. Yeah. And you can always have a coaching buddy or an accountability buddy mm. where you say, this is what I'm going to do by next Friday. And then they say, well, this is what I'm going to do by next Friday. And then you check on each other. And it's a very interesting thing that when somebody else is involved, we are far more responsible than when we're left to our own devices. I think it's true for everyone. Well, I think that's one of the main mindsets in regards to Weight Watchers, isn't it, that you're more successful when you go and weigh in compared to doing it at home. Yes. But they've got their own home thing. Yeah, you know, I'm you've got sure that accountability. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, I've done Weight Watchers before. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, do you do one-on-one coaching as well? I do, yes. And people can find that through your website? Is that the moneyproject.net website? Yes, yes, same website. They'll find um, they'll find pages on coaching. So they can uh, do one-on-one or they can, do, they can buy six sessions, which makes it more economical, and mm-hmm. or they can join a money coaching circle, which is two hours coaching per week for eight women. Mm. Two hours sort of for you... six weeks, it's 12 hours with a group of eight. So they all so get what's... sent off to do their homework and then they come back and discuss. Right. And what sort of stuff do you cover in that? Well, in in that group, I would, st- I would cover the four main, the four core processes of money coaching, right. which are your story, your money archetype, because 
the money archetype thing is quite simple, but it's very profound and I find it's extremely accurate. So they do a quiz and we find out what their money archetype personality is. And each archetype has specific strategies to move further ahead or to manage themselves and get to a better archetype. Um, And then we do the mother-father mirror, which is uh, taking down a history of what your mother used to say about money and what her attitude to money was, and then your father. Do the same for your father. Mm. And if Mm. if your grandparents were very important in your life, will you include them as well? And then you look at that mirror and and you think, those 10 things that I've written about my mum, which of those 10 things now apply to me? Which mm. things did I take on from my mother, from my father, from my grandparents, right? Mm. And, that, and knowing that will help you rewrite your money narrative into a more positive money narr- um, narrative. And then the last thing that we do is a life inventory. And a life inventory, you know, see... Women say, I don't know anything about money. I'm hopeless with money. I don't know how to do this. So what we want to do is we want to prove to that woman that, in fact, she knows a whole lot of stuff Mm. and she's done a whole load of stuff. And with the evidence, with that evidence of what this woman has been able to do, she most certainly has the capacity to manage money. So the life inventory is about writing down every single achievement in your life and we're going from... Uh, important things to trivialities. So we're going from tying shoelaces to the first day at school to playing netball and softball, marks in university, how you did, what kind of a cook are you, do you bake a good cheesecake, Mm. what are your hobbies, Where are the successes and achievements in your life? And they can be anything. So for one person, this might be their garden. Their garden is a really fine achievement. It could be the way they design things. It could be the way they paint or the way they colour. You know, for a man, it might be how how good he is with his tools in his man cave. I mean, and there's no comparison. Comparison Mm. is prohibited. And so I want you to write a life inventory from tiny to now. And then I want you to look at that evidence with the stuff you've been able to do and tell me that you can't learn how to manage money because the evidence is there. You've done a whole lot of stuff. You've proven to yourself you can. So you can. Mm. So you can get started. You can get started with Scott Pape's book. (laughs) (laughs) And there are two women. You need need to get... um... Uh, some affiliate marketing or some commission on all the books that you're promoting. Yeah, well, there's two two Austra- two women. One is Victoria Devine, and mm-hmm. she writes a book called "She's on the Money." Mm-hmm. And there's another woman called Melissa Brown, and her book is "Unfuck Your Money." And they're both. What was excellent. it, Virginia? With Virginia Brown, did you say Melissa? Melissa Brown. And they're both excellent. Those books are both excellent. They're both worth buying. So if somebody said, look, I'm a very intelligent woman and you've proven to me that I can be very successful, I feel like a complete patsy about money, what should I do first? I say read those three books. You can't cope with three? Good. Read one chapter of Scott Pape. Yeah. Scott Pape's books are very easy read. If you can't get through that, then you probably need to shift your mindset more. 
they're, they're very easy reading and they're very, you know, the layout, the way they've done the layout of that book is excellent because the layout of the book actually simplifies the ideas and the exercises that he gives. Mm, mm. Virginia, it's been such a pleasure. I love how passionate you are with changing women's mindsets and I think you're an absolute gem. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you. That's very kind of you. It's been lovely to talk to you. And to you. Everyone, jump onto Virginia's website, have a look at um, what's going on. That's the moneyproject.net and uh, let's go change our mindset in regards to money. Thanks, Virginia. That's right. Thank you very much, Fiona. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 